With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is Jeff T. from the Club 520 Podcast. When it comes to your feet, eBay's got your back. When you see the blue check mark that says authenticity guaranteed, that means real experts are checking your sneakers. Every stitch, down to the sole. They even smell them because nothing says fresh like the scent of real kicks. So kick back and relax. From the drop to your doorstep, eBay doesn't play games with your sneaker game. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guaranteed. Visit ebay.com for terms. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. The volume. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Grabber and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are joined by Tyler, aka Hoop Venue. Everybody, if you aren't already subscribed to him on YouTube, go and do so now. This guy is unbelievable in terms of the amount of real quality content that he puts out. So we're very excited to have him on today. How you doing, man? Man, I'm doing good. Appreciate you guys having me. I'm excited to talk some hoops, man. Excited. Hell yeah, dude. We are pumped to have you. I was just saying to you before we started recording, there have been so many times where I think like, oh, maybe I'll do my next video on this, my like measly one video essay a week compared to your like five. And then like five minutes after I have that thought, you already have a video out on it. It's ridiculous. So seriously, guys, go dial into him because he is just churning out really good content on YouTube. But today we're going to start by talking about a guy who I think we all feel pretty strongly about and that is Nikola Jokic who has just been on a ridiculous tear as of late he had the triple double against Washington 21 19 and 15 where he didn't miss a shot and then another ridiculous game against Portland and then 32 16 and 16 against the dubs on national TV a Warriors team that had been red hot that had been given everybody fits with the small ball looks and he just ate them up alive so Tyler we'll start with you how many guys this century do you think have peaked higher than the level that Nikola Jokic is at right now? Man, it's absurd. Um, I think I think that discussion has to start with where you view Jokic's defense because okay. for years, for years, people always kind of considered him. I mean, is he a liability? Is he not? It's kind of not fair because he's playing with very bad defensive infrastructure come playoff time. Last year, we saw Denver have a very good playoff defense against various different multiple, various different opponents. Mm-hmm. So it makes you wonder, is he a positive? Is he a neutral? And I think that's where the discussion has to start because everyone knows the offensive brilliance. The offense is just absurd. Yeah. So when you take those two things into account, I think you first have to look at the current players. Has he peaked higher than Giannis, KD, Steph? Um, I personally think of the current players, only LeBron and Steph peaked higher at this point. Okay. Those would be the two. And then before that, I think I just look at Shaq obviously was in the 21st century. Yeah. Um, and then I think the in, the very two interesting ones. Um, I I don't want to I don't want to disrespect Kobe, but I do think Jokic. I would take Jokic over Kobe at this point. 
Um, just peak wise, of course. And then the two that I bounce back and forth on are Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. Mm-hmm. Those are the two where I'm like, they both peaked around the same time, 2003 to 2004. And I think Jokic is in that group right there. So I think you got LeBron and Steph and Shaq. Um, and then you got Jokic in the group with Duncan and KG. That's where I would go. I think those are good choices, and we can start with the point you made about his defense, too. I don't think Jokic is a defensive liability. I think when you look at how strong he is as an interior guy, like, I mean, how he walled up AD, like, he can really weaponize his strength on the low block, and again, he's not a great vertical athlete, so he's never going to be a great rim protector by any means, but he's got good hands, he's got good instincts, he's got great IQ, like, you know, he's not like a complete bum, and I think when people do the defensive like he's such a defensive liability they also wipe out how great he is on the glass like that is a component Mm -hmm. of defense where very few guys can cancel out what Jokic does on the glass nightly so I agree with a lot of your list the one guy I do maybe push back on is Steph Curry just because of the two-way value um because I think Jokic when you combine the rebounding factor with the strength and on the interior like I just think he's a more effective defender than Steph the one guy that I would add because I do think I think LeBron Shaq Duncan and KG are good picks. The one guy I would add is maybe Kawhi. And I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on that because he kind of has that same argument where he was the best defender on planet Earth, right? The best perimeter defender on planet Earth. And you couple that with just elite, unstoppable pull-up jump shooting, super physical, could get to the rim, and his playmaking was at an all-time high. Like, Kawhi just peaked at a very high level. So the guys I would definitively put above him, I agree. I would go LeBron. I would probably go Shaq. I would probably go Duncan, and then I would debate Kawhi, Mm. KG, and Steph. Okay, very interesting. So I think there's clearly a range here. There is not a name who I would have my list on being in the realm of Jokic you guys haven't already mentioned. I think that we've laid out all the guys where it's an interesting conversation. LeBron is obviously still on a different level than what we're seeing from Jokic right now. I think Shaq, 2000, 2001 range an even more unstoppable score. I still think Jokic is actually the slightly better overall offensive player because of the fact that he's up there for the greatest playmaker ever while being, in my opinion, the best score alive at this moment. But when you factor in that Shaq was able to legitimately anchor the number one defense in the league in that 2000 season, like there was just a different level of interior value defensively. I do agree that Jokic is not a liability defensively. His hands aren't just good, like he has some of the best hands from a big defensively that we've seen this century. He is an elite defensive rebounder, and so he really doesn't get picked on as much as the narrative was for a while. I do still think, though, he has limitations to where the people who will say like, oh, his defensive box plus minus says he's an elite defender. Obviously, defensive box plus minus sucks for a million reasons, one of which is that I believe it's that one. It's one of the like single number defensive metrics. They literally have assists per game for bigs as a corollary because they're like, oh, well, generally playmaking bigs are good defenders. So that's actually going to bump your defensive box plus minus. That to me just immediately invalidates a stat when you are saying, well, this is just a trend that we've noticed that doesn't even have to do with this side of the ball. He's not at that level. He's not an elite defensive big because he moves okay in space, but obviously he's not very laterally quick and he's a limited vertical athlete, so he can't be a great rim protector. But I think that he's so good at some of the stuff when you talk about his brains his rebounding his hands that he's fine on that end and then i think he makes a real case for the greatest offensive player ever so those are the two who i have above him i actually think i would take peak Jokic over peak steph and i'm very interested in your thoughts on this tyler my take is basically 
that there's that constant debate between what kind of player would you rather have as your offensive centerpiece? Would you rather have a guy like Steph who was so overwhelmingly dominant without the ball in terms of his value, like the greatest off-ball weapon that we've ever seen, but maybe isn't in that top tier all time in terms of imposing himself, specifically when you're talking about physicality. That is the separator to me between Jokic and Steph. I think that Jokic, first of all, isn't in the prototype of like, oh, super ball dominant, you have to bend to my style of play because he can do so many things, right? He's valuable in so many ways, running handoffs as a short roll playmaker, as a spot-up shooter, curling around screens, on top of being this unstoppable post force. But at the end of the day, I just think Jokic's floor is higher than what we've seen from Steph and from really just about any offensive player ever because he gets to his spots on the floor at will and then he has a counter to every single thing that you could throw at him, right? He is going to destroy you with playmaking. If you dig from the perimeter, he kicks out to the shooter every time. If you try to help from the paint, he'll throw the lob or drop it off to Aaron Gordon in some other way. He's just going to kill you with passing. And if you leave him in single coverage, he shoots over 60% on these touch shots. I was looking up this stat. Like, it's so unparalleled. Inside the paint, but outside the restricted area, nobody... Since this data begins in 1997, other than Jokic has ever for a single season shot 60% if they're making at least two shots a game in that range. Jokic for the fourth time in fifth years, in five years, is hitting that mark. So it just makes him truly unstoppable. The turnarounds, the hooks, the Sombor shuffle, the touch shot making, like whatever it may be, the floaters out of pick and roll, you just can't stop him from getting those spots. And then it's like layup efficiency. And when he's also the best passer in the world... I just can't imagine Jokic even having a series like we see from Steph maybe in the 2016 finals or even last year, right? Where Steph is still dictating great offense, but against the Lakers, he's the greatest shooter ever, but the three-point shot isn't falling. And so his efficiency takes a hit. Jokic is just on a different level. He is going to get what he wants every single possession. And I do think that he is the greater offensive hub than Steph because of that. And I think in terms of two-way value, I think that he brings a little bit more as well. But to me, really, with these two, it's so much about their offensive value that I just think Jokic is the more unstoppable offensive player. Man, there's a lot of interesting stuff you just said there. Um, I think the, the first point that I want to hit on is Jokic having a higher offensive floor. I 100% agree with that. I think uh, that's a phenomenal point. I think the fact that you mentioned he has layup type efficiency from as far out as like 10 feet means yeah. that no matter how a defense approaches him in a series, he kind of has like an unlimited counter because yeah. we look at the Minnesota series last year. It wasn't his best shooting series, but they were throwing Gobert under the basket. They were throwing Cat or Kyle Anderson at him and he was just going over the top and he still was very efficient even though mm -hmm. they over-indexed on his best quality. Yeah. I think... The 2016 finals, for example, was a very good example of uh, Steph lacking physicality because the Cavs were roughing him up every time he tried yeah. to run off ball. And uh, he was already a little beaten up. And I think that's a good point. Um, my big thing is there's a pretty clear era difference between 2016 and 2024 at this point. It was mm -hmm. a very different game. So for me, it's, it's almost like Steph could be the exact same player he was in 2016 and put him now. And I would take Jokic. But because mm. Steph was such an outlier to that play style, the value was just crazy. Like, yeah. you look at any offensive plus-minus metric, and that is the GOAT season by, like, a landslide. And to me, it's it's just, like, uh, Steph's movement, his, his range, shooting range, things that have been replicated in the current era didn't exist ever. 
and it was like yeah it just broke defenses like the, the warriors were on a tour de force they won 24 straight games because defenses didn't know what to do they only knew drop coverage they didn't right. know <laughs> and then it was like oh do we double him oh draymond's gonna play four on three terrible yeah. idea and then it's like um and the big thing for me is steph's advantage creation it's like the only way to take away his efficient 30 is to literally let the rest of the team play four on three yeah. And it's like, it does require a connector like Draymond to work to its fullest potential. Right. But the fact that you can find a connector like that to just boost your offense to, because I think people forget the 2016 Warriors weren't a great offensive roster. It was really Steph and Clay shooting, Draymond's connecting, and they were the third best offense of all time. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of insane to me. And uh, I think Jokic with the higher floor, I think if you need someone to run your offense in like a, a clutch time scenario. I think Jokic is a better hub, like someone you can mm -hmm. run through. But I think Steph just being such an outlier in terms of play style during an era where um, that just didn't exist, quite frankly, yeah. just made his value such an outlier at that time. I think it's really close between the two, but ironically enough, I think you answered your own question, Carson. I think it's the unstoppability from like everywhere on the court the one thing that i i think that Jokic kind of gets underrated on is like we will give steph all this credit for off-ball movement for relocating and that's one of his best qualities right is it the fact that and Jokic has some of those similar qualities that's why i think it x's out a little bit right we'll give steph a, a and he deserves it he's like the greatest off-ball player of all time the shooting coupled mm -hmm. with the movement with the stamina the fact that steph doesn't get tired during a freaking game man all the ball handling all the running like Steph doesn't get tired the entire game, like whoever's with him. It is, it's a game-breaking aspect. But with that, I think that Jokic almost cancels that out with the other little things that he does offensively. If you're running DHOs, how effective yeah. he is as a screener and his over-the-top shot making. Like, I don't want to take that for granted either. I have a Lakers fan uh, as a roommate, and so he will always harp on uh, the fact that that was the greatest sweep of all time. Uh, Lakers versus Nuggets, and he's like, man, everybody forgets. And I'm like, well, at the end of the day, Danny, you guys got housed in four games, so what does it really matter? But he'll always complain about Jokic's shot making and how it was a complete outlier. And I just have to explain to him, like, that's just him. It's yeah. just like, I, you can't say that, oh, man, Jokic just made a bunch of BS shots, and that's why we got swept. It's like, no, that's, that's what he does. He's got some of the greatest touch of all time. And when you combine that with the physical qualities, the fact that, any mismatch on the floor, and that's another component, too, is that Steph's great, and Steph can attack mismatches when he gets a big body on him, but it's like you have to have such a specific archetype to X out and really match up well with Jokic, where if four guys on the floor, if he gets a switch, it's it's barbecue chicken. You know, Jokic is cooking him. So it, this is a really close debate, because I think you make a great point, Tyler. Like, at that point in time, Steph yeah. might have been the most valuable player ever, you know, I mean, with his offensive value, but... I just think Jokic is more unstoppable when you couple that with the fact, like you mentioned, Carson, the fact that he is one of the great playmakers of all time. And I don't want to take anything away from Steph and his passing and his gravity, but that's a difference maker too. The fact that Jokic's playmaking is so uh, directly correlated with how dominant he is as a scorer. It's a great point about Steph being so ahead of his time. And I think that there's a tier one of offensive guys like the dudes who you can make the case they're the greatest offensive player ever. And I think that Steph is clearly in it. And you make a great point about the advantage creation, right? Gravity. We can talk about gravity all day, but he literally changes the geometry of a basketball defense as much as anybody that we've ever seen. There is a very, very, very high level of like basketball offensive perfection, though, where I kind of have to ask, do you prefer a guy 
who away from the ball is creating these sort of indirect advantages, if you will. And then you do still need a connector like Draymond Green to capitalize. Okay, short roll, four on three, what can we do here? Or would you rather have the guy who, like Logan said, can right, create value away from the ball, curling off screens? He's really something that we haven't seen from a big there. Playmaking out of those actions as well. And he does bring so much value as a screener running handoffs. But then also, in those more physical playoff environments, directly gets where he wants and you just have no counter. Like, that's the thing to me. Jokic is completely impervious to any defensive coverage. There is nothing you can do. You mentioned we saw both the Timberwolves and the Lakers try, okay, what if we put our big physical wing or our second big on Jokic and then we have our elite rim protector, best defensive big in the Roma role. And he absolutely murdered them with his touch shot making and with his playmaking as well. Regardless, we saw the Heat try to go to zone and it turns out Jokic is like the greatest zone buster ever because you just get the ball to him around the free throw line. He can see over everything. He can make every pass in the book. And again, he is just absolutely lethal efficiency from that range. That's the thing. Steph, I do think you could disrupt with physicality. And I don't think that he was able to just impose himself directly in the same way. So we're talking about, again, like offensive perfection here. But if we're picking between two damn near perfect offensive players, I think Jokic is the more genuinely perfect one. Okay. Unless you guys have anything else on Steph, let's talk about some of these other debates. Logan, go ahead. Last thing, I just want to mention one more thing on Jokic. Like, dude, even think about how Phoenix guarded him in the playoffs this last season, too. It's like, okay, we're just going to let Jokic kill us. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, good luck, guys. Make like, him a I, score. Yeah. Make him a score. <laughs> dude, that will always be the funniest thing in the world to me. Jokic gave them 53 and still 11 assists on 74% true shooting. And the Nuggets had an offensive rating of 133 in that game. And the Suns were like... It worked. Yeah. <laughs> like they were happy with that outcome. No. That was uh that spawned some awful discourse. I still see people oh on Twitter gosh. talking to this day about like, well, people are just gonna make Jokic a score of these playoffs. We saw it work. He lost their fifty three point game. Yeah. That's yeah, that's just Dude, not he's so garbage, yeah. bro. He put up fifty three and eleven. He's trash. Just, yeah. Dude, yeah. it's like, well, maybe it had more to do with the fact that the Suns had 129 points because Book and Katie couldn't miss and had, like, this all-time pull-up jump shooting run, especially Book, that whole series. My God. Ridiculous. Okay, I want to address some of these other names because I think Steph, for me, is maybe the toughest, but the other guy is Tim Duncan, Logan, who it sounds like you have above Jokic. What's your case for Duncan? I would take Duncan because I think one... It's like it's it's kind of like what you said, Tyler, too, about the era difference, too. I think Tim Duncan's value you have to approximate to the era where bigs were the most dominant, and he's one of the greatest defensive big men of all time in terms of IQ, rim protection, uh, positioning, hands. Like, so I think Duncan's value is more in it's more valuable in that era too, right? You can drop Jokic in any era and he'll be great. You can drop Duncan in any era and be great, but Tim's specific archetype in that role was more valuable, but. I think we can kind of tend to take Tim uh, for granted a little bit offensively. He mm -hmm. it might be the greatest post scorer of all time in terms of I don't know. Hakeem's mm. close. Jokic I have to is disagree good. There, I have to disagree there. <laughs> I mean, I think if they fed Tim the way he no. could have been fed, I think Tim could have dominated, bro. If Even we're talking more. best post scores of all time, I think that Kareem, Jokic, Shaq, you don't Hakeem, think Dunk is you don't think Duncan's up there? Duncan. You can put him in the second tier. He doesn't have a case as the greatest. I think if Duncan had been fed more, I think he could have put up numbers comparable to those guys. But Duncan is one of the greatest defenders of all time, and he's an underrated playmaker too. Again, I think it's for sure it's era dependent. I think that's how we have to view all of these things. It's like 
Oh, man, would you rather take Jokic or Bill Russell? Well, uh, you know, it's not really a debate, but it's, again, it's a completely different game that we're playing. So that's the scope that you have to view it in. Uh, and I think Tim's one of the most valuable players, especially in that era, when it is so big dependent, it's so oriented on getting to the basket and getting to the rim, and he's one of the greatest deterrents uh, of all time while bringing elite offensive value. I think Tim's criminally underrated as an offensive player. I mean, I think the 3 run is off the top of my head, but it's like 2015 and near like four and a half with like four blocks a game. It's stupid. It makes absolutely no sense, man. And again, I think it depends on era. If you're asking me who I would rather take in that era, I don't know. I, I might take Duncan. If you're asking me who I'd rather have today, I, I might take Jokic. I, I think that's really dependent. That's the closest to me. Steph is probably below Duncan in who I would take. I would marginally take Jokic because I think there is a significant enough offensive gap where that matters to me but Duncan's the closest cut or and KG man damn both of those guys are tough yeah the Duncan Duncan uh man that's an interesting one I'm glad you brought up the isolation scoring like the post scoring because I think when people think of Duncan they get like the beautiful game Spurs in their head Uh when in reality the early 2000s Spurs were like their offense was super slow and cloggy and it was like hey Let's get Duncan and David Robinson on both blocks and just, like, yeah. see what they can do. We're going to win 65-63. Yeah. to 63. <laughs> And it, yeah. was, uh, it was gross, but Duncan gave them an offensive floor that they wouldn't have been able to slant towards defense in the way they did if he couldn't score efficiently. Yeah. Um, I think he was, like, around plus five or plus six relative true shooting in the playoffs during, like, his three-year peak, which in, with, with his offensive environment was really impressive in his shot diet. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that that kind of became a misconception with Duncan over the years is that he was a good shooter. Um, his mid-range numbers are absolutely porous. Um, and I feel like people think of him as like an elbow. I've seen people put Duncan in like the Dirk and KG mid-range discussion. <laughs> and it's like, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. so, so that's something I think with Duncan, you have to kind of decide if he's a four or five because um, if he's a four, you're not going to get much spacing unless you have a shooting five. Um, if he's a five, I think you're losing some of the defensive value that comes with his, like, because at his best, I think he was more of a um, roamer type of defender as opposed to, like, an in-the-primary-action. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, I do think he's one of the, if not the best two-way player ever. Like, that, I think his offense and defense are, like, even in value. Like, I think it's, like, straight up, like, you're getting this many points on offense, you're getting saved this many points on defense, and it's like, no matter who you put around him, that gives you such a high floor, which is why the Spurs were like a walking 61-win team for 20 right. years. Absolutely absurd. Um, and I think, like you said, it just comes down to the era. If you're talking early 2000s, um, Duncan's paint protection, his isolation scoring, uh, his ability to make extra passes and stuff was just so valuable in that time. But uh, in today's spaced-out era, I do think Jokic would have the advantage for sure. I agree. I think that it's also tough to say, like, you couldn't conceive of a Jokic in 2003, right? Like, a big playmaking at that level, <laughs> that level of touch shot making overall shooting skill. Like, I don't even know if something like that was possible. It probably wasn't. Like, basketball I mean, skill has we to get gotten, better and better year in, year out. There's still a massive gap between him and Arvidas, but I mean, that's I the only real... Arvidas. I mean, that's really the only prototype that, you know, you can even comp a big, strong Bots. MF you can't move you can you know do it all but even there there's still a huge gap yeah i just i agree like i think arvidas was insane pre-nba i also just feel like basketball fans tend to make such a false equivalency between the two. Oh, like, dude arvidas had steph shooting arvidas 
he had Steph shooting with with Wilt's athleticism. Logan and I joke about like how people romanticize these like throwback players from like the early mid two thousands <laughs> who were pretty good and they literally make them sound like the goat. They're like, you didn't see Gilbert Arenas, man. He he had Steph shooting and LeBron's athleticism, or even like Boogie Cousins. We see this with yeah. the Boogie Cousins discourse. <laughs> like, if you think that he wouldn't be Embiid Jokic level today, you were not watching. And it's like, all right, yeah. DeMarcus Cousins was Akeem Olajuwon, I guess. But I think that you guys both make great points about Duncan being an underrated hub offensively. And I think that early 2000s, Duncan was so insane. He's one of the greatest floor raisers ever. People just think about this seamless transition from, oh, he had David Robinson and Sean Elliott, and then all of a sudden he had Peak Manu and Tony Parker, and they just erased the years where his second-leading scorer is Antonio Daniels or Derek <laughs> Anderson, and David Robinson is over the hump, and they're still winning 60 games. That 03 title has to be one of the five most impressive individual title runs ever. Absolutely absurd that he brought that team to win the title, and it's because, yeah, he could anchor consistently top 10 offenses, and I think that his fluidity and athleticism as a young man is underrated like his ability to use jabs to create space and then his body control he had a really effective spin move an awesome hook like he was crafty with the fakes and the step throughs like he was a really really good post scorer again there's a difference between him and Pete Kareem Abdul-Jabbar but Duncan was a good playmaker and he's one of the greatest defensive players that we've ever seen I still think Jokic being in that offensive goat conversation probably gives him the edge to me but i would certainly hear a duncan case because it's what you say tyler like he is up there for the most complete two-way superstar that we have ever seen there's no distance too far for the perfect trip hi checking in for or the perfect table hey where are you coming and when you get access to resi priority notify with your amex platinum card hey this looks amazing i'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have hair plugs? I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs. Yeah, like check out these hair plugs. I mean, don't just walk around, hey, tapping, <laughs> hey, hey, stranger, I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? Some people try to act like they, uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, but I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot? Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but all right. So what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self, and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. Though. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. 
Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I want to talk about KG here because he is the other guy of that era. And Tyler, I remember your old Twitter handle was KG's GOAT. So we'll go to you first on this one. What's your take on KG versus Jokic? Man, so I, I like how we transition from Duncan to KG because the two are always like kind of thrown in the same conversation. They both peaked around the same time at the same position. I right. think there's one huge difference though. With Duncan, we talk about the insane floor raising and how he gives you a really good offensive floor. I think mm-hmm. KG is like, he can give you a good offensive floor because of his playmaking and uh, isolation scoring, but it's more so everything else. Right. Like this guy is one of the best shooters of any big in that era. He is mm-hmm. an elite touch passer, extra passer, great screener, great rebounder, amazing cutter. Like it's like every little thing you want yeah. a role player to do. Right. The guy who is second in the NBA in scoring and winning defensive <laughs> player of the year is doing these things. And right. I think KG in the 2003 and 2004 seasons maybe had to carry a bigger load than any player ever and probably ever will again he was asked to like i said he was the second leading scorer in the nba he averaged over five six assists he averaged 14 rebounds he was the most versatile and complete defender in the nba Mm -hmm. um he was the on-court coach and leader the loudest communicator the game's ever seen the biggest trash talker the game like (laughs) this guy literally filled every single role you want from your team role player star coach um in one and i think that gets overlooked because he was on the worst franchise in nba history during that time they yeah they had a scandal that lost them like six first round draft picks they they just nothing was going good and in that mvp season they were negative 18 with him off the floor they were negative 18 with him off the floor and he and he brought them to was it 54 wins 52 wins yeah i yeah I'm i'm a huge kg guy i think if he just had like it sounds insane to pair him with another superstar but like if you just gave him steve nash for five years he kg would be in goat discussions yeah like because the 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 things that everyone misses on him they wouldn't miss anymore he would be the the ultimate complete player and i think um the 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 era translation thing that we just did with duncan is even more interesting with kg because i think he gets better in today's era i think he shoots threes i think he's a full-time five we know about his switchability on defense. So uh for me, I think I think I would go with KG, but I think it's um I think him, Duncan, and Jokic are all just in the same group where it's like if you flip the order one through three, mm-hmm. I wouldn't bat an eye. And I think there's a big misconception that comes with Kevin Garnett because of where most of his legacy comes from and that 08 championship ring, right? He's older. He's not the number one offensively anymore. He's got a lot of other guys he can lean on with Rondo, with Allen, with Pierce, right? His role is so different. And that's when he's ultimately immortalized, right? I think there's a lot of guys too, Tyler. You mentioned the era difference. Dude, like, imagine AI and this spread out. I mean, like, dude, he's he's getting 33 a night in the most clogged, ugly era of basketball ever. Like, yeah. you give taking, AI space. Taking 27 shots, but yeah. Yeah, dude, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, dude, and he had stayed out at the club until 6 in the morning the night before, man. <laughs> and he did not practice. He did not. We talking about <laughs> practice, man. Yeah, I mean, AI could give you maybe 40 a night. I think that's a really, like, I, it makes me it makes you really wonder about what these guys could look like in the modern day. But, yeah, dude, uh, KG... 
They're 19 points for 100 possessions better with him on the floor. The 4 Timberwolves, again, this is a roster. We'll give you some of the names. Sam Cassell, Latrell Sprewell, Wally Zerbiak. You know, shout out the boys. Keep in mind, keep in mind, that's the best team he had by a ever, mile ever. in the Timberwolves years because they got Cassell and Sprewell that offseason. And group, they were both old. Neither yeah. of them were as good as they were at their peaks. But, like... Before that, it is disgusting, and after that, it's disgusting. It's the best number two and three you ever had, and he's making that group play like a 65-win team. Uh, I do want to add one note. I think the greatest trash talker ever in NBA history is Larry Bird, but I think KG's too, man. Larry could run his mouth, bruh. Um, yeah. That one's a lot tougher, and, and that's the point, Tyler, is it's like Jokic has this like great cast around him. Mm-hmm. KG never had that at his peak, and so we're left salivating, we're left wondering... What could have been? I mean, he dragged them to the Western Conference Finals. I honestly think KG is probably closer to a debate between Duncan. Like, I would probably, just because I think there's more offensive value there. But it's tough. I I hate to beat a dead horse, but I'm going to... Oh, I don't want to beat a dead horse because Jokic really likes him. But I'm going to take Jokic. uh, I'm going to take Jokic over KG too, man. I just think, like you said, Carson, the... Offensive GOAT. But I also don't disagree, Tyler. I would hear arguments for Duncan, KG, Jokic in in any sort of order. I'm going to take Jokic here too. And I actually slightly prefer Duncan's peak to KG's. And the reason is everything that you mentioned about the ceiling raising, Tyler. Like if you put KG in a situation where he has a real offensive number one, like he's obviously still going to be the best player on a title team. Say if you have Steve Nash, that would be a dynasty. I do think though that Duncan was more capable in truly suboptimal situations of anchoring an offense as a number one. And I think that you can't hold KG's offensive struggles in the playoffs against him to the extent that the box score would suggest because he was playing in these nightmarish offensive situations where everybody's loaded up on him, right? The spacing is poor. There's no high-level threats off the bounce alongside him. But I do think there is truth to the fact that Duncan was just able to physically impose himself a little bit more as a bigger, stronger guy and I think that the results show that. Like, I don't know if you put KG on that 03 Spurs team, if he can carry the load as the number one scorer that is needed to get that team through. And that's kind of the difference. Jokic, I just have no question, regardless of circumstance. Like, I know, I know that my offense is going to be championship level. And of course, the Nuggets have put a beautiful supporting cast alongside him. I love Jamal Murray. I literally own a shirt that says this guy loves Jamal Murray from like five years ago. He's one of my favorite players because he's one of the best difficult shot makers. He's so beautiful to watch go to work. But like there are better lead shot making guards than him in the league, right? And that's all Jokic needs. Jokic just needs a guy who's really good in that role and he needs good spot up shooting and a good athlete and rim finisher alongside him and Aaron Gordon. And you're looking at like all time offense. And I just think I'm more confident in that. When you're talking about one guy taking me to that championship level than KG. Even though it's tough because we never got to see KG with championship level supporting cast until he was in Boston and then he was a different player. But the on-off stuff with him is absolutely absurd. As is it for Jokic though. Like that's been the thing with Jokic. It's like these last three years we're seeing on-off numbers with him that we haven't seen since Kevin Garnett. These dudes who are plus 20 points per 100 possessions It's unfathomable how much they both transform their basketball teams. KG, it's obviously much more about both sides of the ball. Jokic, it's more singularly about the offense. But I just think that level of unstoppable offensive force with a guy who has a question mark in terms of being a number one offensively, I would take Jokic. Okay, 
We've spent more time on this than I expected, but I think this has been really interesting. Are there any of these other guys who we think really make a strong case? If it's Kawhi, KD, Kobe, Giannis, anyone else you guys want to do the comparison for? Kobe for sure. I mean, okay. if there's, I think if there's going to be a guy, and Carson, we ranked our top 25 players in the offseason. Mm-hmm. I want to redo that list because I just think I got Kobe completely wrong. Um, I think when we're doing that, I just kind of think I take – a lot of what Kobe could do at a really high level for granted. Now, I think there's one big difference that we have to make with Jokic and these other guys. We're talking about, uh, Tyler, you said, you know, Duncan's one of the greatest two-way players of all time, right? And that's total approximate value. The reason we don't say this about Kobe and Michael Jordan isn't because they weren't great defenders and super skilled, but they're different archetypes, right? They're perimeter defenders, so they can't single-handedly transform a team defense with their impact. They're all-time defenders, two of the greatest perimeter defenders of all time, but... uh, you know, they can't single-handedly transform a defense like a big man can. That being said, I think Kobe was in so many... And, and there is a stubbornness with Kobe's style of play. And that's why I don't think that you can... That's why I would still take Jokic over him. But the skill of Kobe in more optimal situations, right? At his apex, in like 06. If he didn't have to drag the supporting cast of bums. If he didn't have Smush Parker with him alongside him, man, and have to drag these teams. Like, that was a big component of why Kobe put up so many shots and did that is because he felt this supreme weight on his shoulders. I have to shoot this many times a game. I have to get 35 points per game. It was a mentality thing as well. Like, I think when we look at his numbers and we look at the raw the raw numbers, we take for granted how great Kobe was as a passer and what he could do moving the ball and what he could have become as an offensive hub. And I don't want to take that for granted. That's one of the things that I got wrong about the Kobe argument in the past is taking things that he could do because he is one of the most skilled players of all time. He might be the most skilled player of all time. Mm-hmm. And so I think you can take advantage. I think you can take for granted what he didn't maximize. Like Kobe was a good passer and he was a great defender and he was just even surpassed by both of those skill sets with his scoring. I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take for granted Kobe's complete offensive value. I think he's the next name off my list, even more so than Kawhi, even more so than Giannis. Giannis with his massive offensive shortcomings. I don't care that he puts up X amount of points per game and this assist. Giannis is fundamentally flawed as a player. Kobe's really close for me, but I would still take Jokic. Uh, But that's one thing that I think I fundamentally got wrong when we did that in the offseason, man, is taking Kobe's other elite traits for granted because of his scoring. Man, I totally agree. Um, I think, for me, like, we just grouped all these guys. I think, how I said, Duncan, KG, Jokic, all interchangeable. I think the first guy next is Kobe. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's really tough because I think a lot of Kobe's career— has more to do with um, things that he was capable of doing, but was it consistent? So, like, we talk about the defense. I think yeah, in 1999-2000, like, we're talking about one of the craziest perimeter defenders ever. Like, screen navigation, versatility, shot blocking from a guard. Like, this dude checked all of the boxes. But as he gets up there in age and he starts to take on more of an offensive load without Shaq, um, it's more so, like, you get these possessions. Like when he walks right. up Kyrie, smacks the floor, hikes mm-hmm. up his shorts, and it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's an all-defensive first-team player. But then it's like, you watch a full game, and I, w- I was watching the 2008, I want to say, Nugget series, and he spent the entire series guarding L- Linus Kleza, I think his name is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out. Um, and, and the problem is, I don't know how to separate the scheme from the talent because the Lakers' scheme was 
let's let guys beat us off the dribble, run out to shooters, let them beat us off the dribble, and funnel them into Bynum and Gasol. That's what mm -hmm. they did. And so I'm watching Kobe get beat by Linus Kleza over and over and over again, and I'm like, does he suck? Or <laughs> or is this like is this intentional? I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like that's so hard because when you look at defensive plus minus numbers, it's like, hey, Kobe's bleeding a lot of value maybe, or maybe he's not quite an all-defensive caliber player. But then you have these moments where it's like, like I, I was looking through synergy and it was Kobe in the playoffs from 08 to 10 only averaged like, or only allowed like 0.6 points per isolation or something. And it's yeah. like when he locks in to oh, close yeah. the game, this guy's a crazy defender. And then yeah. you have everything you talked about on offense, like the greatest tough shot maker ever. I don't even think that's a debate. Not um, a debate. Versatility in his scoring, like no matter what, we talked about Jokic being defense proof. It's a little bit different with Kobe in that his ceiling isn't as high efficiency wise. But it's like you throw the 08 Celtics at him, you throw the 09 Magic, you throw the 08 Spurs, any of these defenses, and it's like this guy's just gonna barrage you. You look at a highlight, yeah. like any any one game performance from peak playoff Kobe is a highlight tape, and it's like like yeah. every if you look at a shot chart, it's like every single spot on the floor is checked. Like this guy did it all, and I think that's just absurd because it gives you so much flexibility. If you want to go heliocentric like Mike D'Antoni did in 2013. If you want to do the triangle offense, he's got an elite off-ball skill set. He doesn't turn the yeah. ball over. Things like that. And it's just so interesting to me, his career, because the highs in the playoffs don't feel as high as some of these other guys in terms of, like, scoring efficiency. But mm -hmm. I don't know if there's anyone in NBA history who, at their peak, gives you this, like, guaranteed resilient floor like Kobe did. It's like, no MJ. matter what, he's going to get right? hit. I think MJ's the other guy. When you look at right. just the playoff volume, it's just inevitable. But I think that's a great point. Kobe's always tough to have debates about because I think there are some people who often are Lakers fans or they're just very nostalgic for this era. And so then they put Kobe in that goat tier where I think there's clearly enough, I don't even know if I would say flaws, but imperfections in his game when you're holding him up to the MJ LeBron standard that... Uh, he doesn't check all those boxes as resoundingly, but I do think there are some things that he does that are underrated. Like, people focus so much on the one-on-one -on -one scoring skills, that the fact that he is the toughest shot maker ever. But I think that what he was as an offensive engine can sometimes get lost in that. Like, the stress that uh, is on a defense when a guy does have the off-ball value that he is, and when he does demand two defenders at the elbow, like, a significant portion of possessions. And the impact there... The fact that every year from 05 to 07, when he has that joke supporting cast, they were still a top eight offense. Like, that's incredible value. It's incredible value. But I do think ultimately, if you're going to make a Kobe over Jokic case, it kind of has to be on the back of a defensive difference. I think as great as Kobe was, you'd be hard pressed to argue to me that he exceeds Jokic in value because Jokic, I think, has a ton of stylistic versatility as well and is going to be a considerably more efficient scorer and a considerably better playmaker again he's just in that tier one goat conversation offensive player i would have kobe a tier below that and when it comes to his defensive value i do agree it can be a bit difficult to gauge my take is those isolation stats don't surprise me at all i think that kobe was a very prideful one-on-one -on -one defender and i think that that's where he shined because he had the tools like he had really good feet. He had a 6'11 wingspan. And if he took those matchups personally, that's where you get those Kobe clamps X guy highlight. And then that creates this mythology that, oh my God, he was doing that every possession. Every possession, he was picking up dudes full court and shutting them down and nobody could get a bucket on Kobe. I think in terms of overall team impact 
as a defender, he was an above average guy. But again, when you're looking at some of the off-ball defensive stuff, he was a lot more prone to lapses in attention there than like, you know, an elite play-to-play defender. He took some gambles that could go either way. He wasn't this like super big wing who could have a bunch of help uh, side impact, right? And he didn't have crazy high-end switchability. So I think Kobe was a good defender, but I think the 12-time all-defense greatly overstates his defensive value. Like, that would mean that he's KG. That would mean that he's Tim Duncan. And he's just not close. And so that's why I still take Jokic over Kobe. But I do agree that he's the next guy. Kawhi, honestly, I would take over KD's peak. But at this point, I think we're pretty clearly into the tier of, okay, we're taking Jokic over these guys. So since we've spent 44 minutes on this or whatever it's been, get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers who deposit $5 or more can get a no-sweat bet up to $1,000 back in a bonus bet. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get a no-sweat bet up to a thousand dollars if your first bet loses only on DraftKings sportsbook with code nerds the crown is yours gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net in new york call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in connecticut help is available for problems with gambling call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org please play responsibly on behalf of boot hill casino and resort licensee partner golden nugget lake charles 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in ontario bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance see sportsbook.draftkings.com football terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions terms and responsible gaming resources let's move on real quick when we're talking about Jokic to the Nuggets as a team Tyler do you think that they're even better than last year's team that just ran through the playoffs to a title and what do you think it would take for any team out west to actually dethrone them I don't know I wouldn't say they're better and I think it's just because they lost a capable bench ball handler and replaced him with kind of a looming question mark like christian brown didn't take a step up like he was expected to peyton watson has been kind of spotty like i feel like people expected him to come in and be this ultra versatile defender and it's like he has moments but he's definitely not some consistent lockdown guy and i think it really comes down to if jamal murray can replicate his shot making because Mm -hmm. those bench units are critical i mean Jokic plays like what 41 42 minutes in the playoffs so it's very small time that he's not out there but in those minutes they always go to that Jamal plus switch everything unit and it's like they rely heavily on Jamal to make tough shots like they don't the offense stagnates and I think the fact that they lost Bruce Brown in those minutes is going to take a bigger toll in the playoffs than it has in the regular season because now Jamal is like on an island out there Mm -hmm. and I think that'll be tough and I also think uh people are underestimating how much better the west is this year oh yeah than it was last year like you've got the thunder and timberwolves um you've got the clippers are healthy now with Kawhi, harden uh man yeah the west is scary i think uh i think people are going a little bit overboard with like the nuggets concerns um i still think they're the best team in the west but i think it'll be a lot more competitive to make it out of there because of losing a secondary ball handler and also how much better everyone else has gotten. I completely agree with you. I think the Bruce Brown loss is the biggest one. And Peyton Watson and Christian Brown are good high-energy athletes, you know, who are competent shooters. Like, you know, if they're wide open, they can hit a shot. And I think they're going to make plays, but those are big losses. And I think you have to look at the bench unit. I think they needed, because, you know, now it's still back on Reggie Jackson to perform well. And, I mean, 
shout out Reggie, but it's like, you know, it's what what Reggie is going to show up today. You know, sometimes yeah. he looks like Superman. Sometimes he looks like, uh, you know, man, Clark not Kent. Superman. Yeah, Clark Kent. That's a great comp, man. I think that's uh, where you want to go with yeah. that analogy, buddy. <laughs> um, and, and the biggest thing to me is that the Nuggets didn't address uh, either of those concerns. They didn't get another ball handler. And the bigger thing to me is they didn't get another big man. And what I've been clamoring for with this Nuggets unit is just a big – and I know they're hard to come by. These guys, like the – the Hardensteins of the world, the big zoos. I just want a big body that could maybe, if your offense isn't going to take that leap, well, your offense doesn't have to be as great if you had a good interior big man who can take your defense up a notch in non-Jokic minutes. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is a big difference. So I agree with you. The Nuggets are my favorite. And here's the recipe. Here's what I think that's got to happen because I do think the Nuggets are my favorite. I agree with you, Tyler. I think the West is better. Uh, Dallas is better too. Phoenix is better. Uh, those teams, I think, are legit contenders still. I'm not ready to count them out, even with their flaws. Um, I think you have to have a major injury, I think, to one of the Nuggets. If that's Jamal, if that's MPJ, if that's Gordon, I think a starter has to get hurt. I think Jokic and MPJ, one of their or both jump shots have to disappear. I think Jokic and Murray have to falter at the end of games and fail to slam the door. I think Jokic's rebounding advantage has to get negated by a big body. And what you said, I think Denver's bench uh, fails to add offensive punch, uh, and they get massacred in non-Jokic minutes. Without Jokic, they have an offensive rating of 106.4. They have a defensive rating of 117.5 without Jokic. That's a net rating of negative 11 in non-Jokic minutes. I mean, that's horrid. And so I think all of those things have to happen. But if Denver is at full strength, I still have complete faith in this team Maybe not mowing through the West like they did last season, but you know I think there's going to be a lot of competitive series, uh, and I think we're going to see some battles. But if they're at full strength, I really have a hard time believing any other team other than Denver comes out of the West. I agree. I wouldn't say that they're better than last year. I think that Bruce so clearly was the sixth best player on that team and would be the sixth best player on this team. And he did so many little things. The ball handling, the transition playmaking, and the ability to push there. Uh, the defensive ability, like the positional rebounding, like he's just a really good all-around role player. Uh, You could argue they have a little more depth this year because Peyton Watson has emerged as at least a rotation guy and he does have the athletic tools and he has stretches as a jump shooter. And I think that he at least gets how to weaponize his athleticism off ball as a cutter. And so does Christian Brown. Like those guys are solid, but I do think Christian Brown really stepped up in the finals. He was not that level of player throughout the playoffs of the regular season. They probably need one of those two guys to play really well, to play maybe a little bit above their regular season level to be as good as last year. And then it does come down to Reggie. And Reggie scares me as a bench ball handler, but (laughs) last year he was getting DNPs. This year, he actually had that really good stretch when Jamal was out. Like, he's still up and down. The shot selection is questionable. And for the most part, you're right, Tyler, it is going to be those Jamal and the rest of the bench units, so they don't necessarily need Reggie. But at least there's a little bit of a dimension there that they didn't have. But I think overall, they're very similar. And even though the West is better, it's still really tough for me to look at anyone and be like, here's how they beat the Nuggets. Because who matches that combination of overwhelming size and elite skill? Interior dominance offensively and otherworldly shooting. Like L.A.? No. I mean, they just don't have the size. I mean, they got Big Zoo. Big Zoo, Big Zoo does not equal a front court of Jokic, Gordon, and MPJ. I mean, it's absurd. I just think they're going to bully people. And that's the thing. The Clippers, we know, 
our reliance on those pull-up shooting stretches. And maybe if they go nuclear, maybe if they shoot 50% from three in a series I mean, and Aaron Gordon can't knock down an open three in the corner and Jokic's jumper leaves him, like, maybe they could pull it off. You think you they think, match up physically? I mean, Kawhi at the four versus Aaron Gordon, that to me is negated. Jokic versus Big Zoo is kind of negated. PG versus MPJ is a miss. Like, don't get me wrong, the Nuggets are definitely bigger, but I think LA matches up well with them. Yeah, I mean, bench-wise... Eh, there's not really a ton of bench size, but I think starting fives, yeah, I think the Clips kind of do match up physically with Denver, and they have the think, shot, Tyler? and they have the shot making with Harden, PG, and Kawhi. I don't know. I, I kind of believe in LA a little bit. It's interesting. I think the interesting thing to consider is that when you're defending Denver, the one of the most unique things about what Jokic brings is um, the way he kind of opens the paint, and I think. The Clippers rely so heavily on Zoo to be their only rim protector. So it's like, mm-hmm. if Kawhi is big enough to handle Gordon, I don't think he's got like that rim protection. Same with PG. Yeah. He's big enough to handle MPJ, but he's not like a vertical presence around the rim. So I think the big thing there is that Jokic is going to have Zoo stretch 20 plus feet most of the possessions. And yeah. I think you have to rely on guys like Kawhi, PG Harden to perfectly execute screening actions and not lose cutters. And that worries yeah. me. That worries yeah. me. I also think pick and roll is just going to be a problematic dynamic throughout that entire series because they're going to want zoom and drop and you're just going to get you're just going to get torched man like Jokic with the touch shot making or if his three ball is on as in the playoffs it historically has been right he shot 46% last year. I just think that they have more undeniable consistent unstoppable routes to a lead offense than the Clippers because of how they impose themselves because of really Jokic but also the supporting cast. And then outside of that, it's like, okay, Minnesota has the most defensive answers, but I don't think they have enough when you consider their offensive skill limitations. As great as OKC is, I think that they just get obliterated by that Denver front line. Like, there's just such a mismatch in terms of size and physicality there. The Mavs, I really like. I still don't think that that defensive front court matches up. Like, again, it would have to be nuclear Luka, 40-something a night Luka. Like, you just have no answers, and Kyrie goes crazy, and the spot-up shooting is nuts, and the Nuggets are leaving a bunch of points on the board with missed threes. It's still really hard for me to see. I honestly think we are on a collision course for a Denver-Boston final, and uh, I think it would be one of the best finals of this century. I think those are two incredibly talented basketball teams. All right, let's move on here because, Tyler, you tweeted out something about this a couple weeks ago that got the people up in arms. It got some people angry. You said that when the Cavs were on that crazy stretch winning a bunch of regular season games, you asked, could Devin Booker do what Donovan Mitchell is doing right now? And a bunch of people took that as you saying that Mitch was better than Booker or whatever. People got mad. I am curious, though, how big do you think the gap between those two is? I don't think it's much of a gap. I, I I don't know. So these two have kind of been like in the same ballpark for how long now? Like I think going back to even 2020 when Booker had that run in the bubble and then Donovan Mitchell had his run in the bubble, mm-hmm. that, that kind of spawned the conversations right there. Um, yeah. 2021, Booker gets a better team around him. They win a lot of games. Utah's the best team in the regular season that year. And again, it's like, who's the better shooting guard, Mitchell or Booker? In the playoffs... Booker made the finals. Mitchell probably outperformed him statistically. And it's, again, it's like you have both sides. 2022, both teams flame out in the playoffs. And the discussion, mm-hmm. I feel like the discussion kind of died down after that year. Like yeah. people, Nobody really talked about it. 2023, Mitchell's on the Cavs. Um, I feel like during the regular season, it seemed to lean pretty heavily towards Mitchell. 
until he flamed out in the playoffs. Booker went on the greatest shot-making run the league's ever seen. And then it was like, all of a sudden, Booker was a top 10 player and Mitchell's not top 15. And all of a sudden there was a gap and it was like a 10-game stretch that turned everyone. That kind of confused me. And I feel like when I asked that question, is Devin Booker capable of doing what Donovan Mitchell is right now? People took it as, is Devin Booker really better than Donovan Mitchell? When in reality, I'm talking about the fact that the Cavs offense was structured around Mitchell's ability to pressure the rim, create rotations and make those like high level skip passes. And Booker's never been a, the type of driver that Mitchell is. And he's not the same type of pull up three point shooter that Mitchell is. So I'm talking about when you lose your secondary ball handler, you require Mitchell to be a heliocentric offensive player, which we've never seen from Booker. And the Cavs go on like an 18 and one stretch. I ask, can Devin Booker do this? And Mm -hmm. that's not me saying that Donovan Mitchell is the better player. They play different styles. I think Booker is one of the best off-ball players in the league. I think Booker is a much more, uh, I'll say, low-error defender. I think when you put good defenders around Booker, he'll hold his ground better. And Mm -hmm. it's more so like um, it was a stylistic thing. I don't think there's a huge difference between them. I still prefer Booker at this point. I think he's a better shot maker, more versatile shot maker. Like I said, the off-ball stuff. I do think he's better at making interior passing reads, which goes a long way. But – uh. And just in terms of like, put the ball in this guy's hands, create the most efficient team offense. That's what I was asking about. And I think Donovan Mitchell has the edge there. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily agree. Uh, the, the one thing you said about book being a, a heliocentric guy. I mean, we have seen stretches even dating back to when Chris Paul went out and there's a, you know, a two week stretch where D book is unconscious. I understand what you're saying. I think Donovan Mitchell completely clears as a rim pressure. I mean, the numbers back it up, the athleticism, like watching the games backs it up. Like uh, Devin Booker takes just 20% of his shots at the rim. Mitchell takes 29% of his shots at the rim. Sure, D-Book may be more efficient on those shots, but there's a reason because, right, he, the only layups that he's taking are wide open ones when he blows by his guy to the, you know, to the lane. Like Mitchell just gets downhill a lot more at a higher rate. So I understand what you're saying. And I don't think the gap's huge. I don't think the gap's massive, but... Uh, to me, D-Book is a better off-ball player. He's a better cutter. I think he's a better scorer and operator out of pick and roll. I trust him more there. I think he is a better tough shot maker. And the big edge to me is the fact that D-Book is just a supreme post-scorer compared to Mitchell. And he can just exert his strength and his physical attributes more, right? Book's just a bigger guy where he can weaponize that a little more. And what Mitchell's edge that he has in athleticism, I think D-Book makes up for in craftiness, in change in pace, in how he operates with the book. He's just a more slithery guy, right? I don't think the gap's huge. And I think one big key with the Mitchell thing that we have to emphasize is his situation. You said that, Tyler. D-Book, mm-hmm. D-Book went through the fire. And he became this player because he played with 20-win supporting cast of scrubs. Where he had Dragon Bender and the boys. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> Alex Lynn and Markeith Morris and the fellas. It's like D-Book had to grind and he had to grow with the ball in his hands, with the ball out. That, that's why he's here. That's why he is a player. Because Earl Watson and the coaching staffs that came in, they said D-Book's going to be our guy and we're going to make him our guy. But when you look at that and you look at the supporting cast that Booker has had in years uh, past, Mitchell has been forced to grow as a ball handler. He's been forced to grow as a playmaker. And he's also been forced to make the most out of supporting cast that don't really uh, work as well with his skill set. He's playing with two non-floor spacing bigs and Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. And I think that's the point. That's kind of the crux of this argument. 
when you take a guy that has the rim pressuring capabilities of Donovan Mitchell and you put really good shooters around him, even if it's Sam Merrill and Max Strus and Georges Niang, it's like, hit him in the head, man. Duh. You give a guy yeah. like this good floor spacers and look what happens. He creates great offense. So I think you make a great point. I don't think the gap is massive between these two guys, but I just barely prefer Booker's skill set. And I and that's a good question. I don't know if we should hold that against Mitchell because you look at what happened in this last playoff run. It's the Kobe thing. Mitchell's sitting here going, damn, man, nobody else here on this team can make a shot. I guess I'm just going to take 10 pull-up threes on 10 straight possessions. Mm -hmm. Can I really hold it against the guy? He's trying to will this team to victory when his teammates just aren't pulling their weight. Uh, I I don't think it's that. I I still prefer Devin Booker, but I don't think the gap is really, really massive between these guys because Mitchell is better at pressuring the rim, and he really has grown as a playmaker over these past few seasons. It's an interesting question because I actually prefer Book by a good amount. But to your question, Tyler, I think that Mitch is clearly the better floor raiser because when it comes down to it, if you are just saying, hey, can you bring us to a good level offensively without another high-level creator on the ball alongside you? What's more valuable than a guy who gets penetration and can create those drive and kick opportunities at the level that Mitchell can? There's not a lot. And his ceiling is super high individually like we've seen those unbelievable runs those torrid runs uh 2020 and 2021 right where he's not missing these pull-up threes and he combines that with that athleticism and it's like oh my god donovan mitchell's gonna lead back-to-back playoffs and scoring with really good efficiency i think this is the best version of him that we've ever seen because i do think he's taken steps as a playmaker this year i also think though his individual floor when you're looking at those playoff environments is a lot lower than books because I think he can get into those modes where Logan, I agree with you. Situation matters, right? He was dealing with some packed paints because they had the two big looks in the playoffs last year, but nevertheless, he was too reliant on those tough pull-up threes and they were not falling. And also the year before that in Utah, when I don't think he has that same excuse in terms of the offensive personnel alongside him, he was taking a lot of really tough pull-up threes and he was missing almost all of them. And so then it can just bottom out and it feels like, all right, We're going with Spida, and if he's off, then as a team, we're kind of just doomed. And that, to me, is a difference maker because Book is going to get good shots for himself no matter what out of any action from anywhere on the floor because he's the most versatile shot maker in basketball. And I think he also fits much more easily with other stars. And that's why I think he is the guy who, if I'm talking about, all right, I'm trying to win a title. Who do I want on my team? I don't think either of these guys are number ones. So give me the guy who I think is the perfect number two versus the guy where I think there's some adjustments there. And that's the difference between Book and Mitchell. But it's unbelievable what Book does from everywhere on the floor. He's over 53% inside the paint, outside the restricted area. Those short range jumpers and floaters. For mid range, he's over 47%. From three, he's 38%. And all of these are with like nearly equivalent volume, which is what makes him so impossible to guard. He can go to anything at any time and the number of counters that he has right the number of ways to create space logan you mentioned the post-up situations like he has such great body control and balance on these spinning jumpers these turnarounds his use of fakes his footwork it's unbelievable and so that to me just makes him a uniquely reliable offensive player for a guy who isn't super physically imposing, who doesn't get to the rim at will. Like normally that's what gives you a high floor, right? When you can create those super high efficiency at rim opportunities, book is like the antithesis. Actually, 
Tyler, you had the perfect tweet about this, dude. I, it was advertising the video you did on Book. I thought this summarized it so well. You said that he has the efficiency of a modern play finisher with the shot profile of like an early 2000s wing. And that's true. Book is the only guy who can do that. He is so exceptional as a pull-up shooter and so versatile there and so good as a catch-and-shooter off-ball, curling off screens, everything he does. I just think he's unbelievable. And I think in playoff environments, that scales better and it's a much safer bet. And the ceiling is still crazy high as we saw last year. No, he'll probably never replicate that, but he is such a one-of-one -one pull-up shooter that like he can do these things with crazy volume and efficiency with the shot diet that nobody else on the planet could. 100% agree. Like everything you said. Yeah. Can I get it's... your... Go ahead. I, I, I want to get your guys' gauge on other players outside of D-Book. Would you guys rather have Donovan Mitchell or uh, Jamal Murray? Donovan Mitchell, for sure. Donovan Mitchell. I love Jamal. I mentioned the shirt already. But like when you're talking about there, there's too much of a gap in terms of how capable are they of floating a team. Like, it, we've seen the second units with Jamal, which isn't a fair judgment because he's with bench players. But, like, again, there's just uh, such a difference in terms of rim pressure and the playmaking ceiling that that guy can have. I, Would think, you it's, guys, I think it's Donnie. He's had his struggles this year. Would you guys rather have Donovan Mitchell or Damian Lillard? I would rather take this version of Donovan Mitchell. This is this is tough because I'm I'm like historically high on Damian Lillard for mm -hmm. I have been since like 2019. That's tough because I don't really know how to gauge where Lillard's at right now. Like I don't think yeah. he's the level of shooter he's shooting right now. But like mm -hmm. I also think mm -hmm. it looks like he's lost some burst and that was he's a huge part of his game. Dude. That was a huge part uh -huh. of his game. So if he loses like if if that burst doesn't come back by playoff time, I think I would take Mitchell. And yeah. I I agree, and I really feel bad for Dame, too, is it's not only like he's losing the athletic and physical advantages, too. Every quote that I hear out of Damian Lillard in press conferences is, this Sad, guy is, dude. dude, he is mentally unwell, and I, I, I genuinely feel bad for Damian. Like, I think that is a, you know, we can talk about, like, I don't think he's locked in on the game right now because I think off-court his life is really tumultuous, and I think that has bled into how he's performing on the court. Like, he has said that he's lonely, he's yeah. going through a divorce right now with his family, like, I think he misses his kids. Like, I just feel bad for Dame, and I think that is bled onto the court. I, I got two more guys for you. Can, I, you, can I say yeah, one more ahead, thing real ahead. quick about Dame? Like, Tyler, I'm also super high on Dame historically. I think last year's Dame, like, there's not a question between him and Donovan Mitchell. Last year's Dame was, like, a real borderline top 10 player and offensively, purely a borderline top 5 player. But I'm looking at a dude who it's not just that he's having, like, career low efficiency from 3. He's taking a career low percentage of his shots at the rim. Like, he's just not getting by people. And I think Milwaukee being such a stagnant offense right now and not really having a high level threat as a roller at least considering the fact that they don't use Giannis in that capacity as much like I think that that affects Lillard's shot diet but I don't know it just feels like Mitchell is much more capable of getting what he wants on the floor right now than this version of Dame I hope that that changes but it does seem like we may have seen like some real decline from Dame all right I got two more guys for you would you guys rather have Donovan Mitchell or Kyrie Irving Ooh. Damn, that's tough. That's really tough. I think that Kyrie is clearly a better and more versatile pure shot maker. I think that Mitchell is clearly, again, when we're talking about floor raising, better equipped with his athleticism and the playmaking that can come off of that. I don't know. It, maybe it comes down to the book rationale again. Like, I think book's in a different level than Kyrie right now, but 
Neither of these guys can be a number one. If I need one of them to be my number two, I'd rather have Kyrie as my number two. I uh, I think the Kyrie discussion is interesting because um, for me, I, I like the Booker argument because like Kyrie's an extremely versatile shot maker. Um, yeah. I think there are three differences uh, between the two that like really separate the vo- the value. I think one is um, the fact that Kyrie's just simply shorter. So when you need yeah. a guy to like get into the mid range and shoot over the top of defenses, I think Kyrie has a really high release point, but I still think Booker just has access more access. Uh, yeah. The second one is the strength, which kind of goes hand in hand with the size. But like Booker can bully his way to his spots totally. and get to the short mid range. I think Kyrie re- requires that like slithery lane, like hunt hunt out space. Yeah, yeah. And then number three, um, to me is foul drawing. Booker's a very good foul drawer. Yeah. Kyrie isn't anymore. Um, I think he was getting the line at a decent rate in Cleveland, and I think that goes in hand in hand with the fact that Kyrie. Um, has lost a lot of rim pressure that kind of got overlooked over the years. Uh-huh. Like with all these injuries, with age, um, he doesn't get to the rim like he used to. And it's like people look at the fact that Kyrie is a an all time three point shooter, all time mid range shooter, all time finisher, but they don't consider the fact that the shot profile doesn't mm-hmm. allow him to utilize the all time shot making at the same degree. So I think that's where it's really interesting. I think. Like you said, Donovan Mitchell has more of like a number one style game. Like I trust him to create an advantage and yeah. like get his role players more open shots. But I think like Kyrie is kind of the point guard version of Kevin Durant, where it's like plug and play. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, you we yeah. want you with these teammates. You're gonna get your efficient twenty five. And it's yeah. like, um, I think that's really interesting. I think if I was talking about overall value, I think I would still prefer Mitchell because I think it's worth noting. We haven't seen him in a number two situation ever. Um, True. He, like he True. was, a, he was a number one as a rookie, and it's yep. like it's really weird because I think Mitchell has a lot of untapped value because um, you look at his like burst athleticism, um, you look at his change of direction, like the mm-hmm. amount of I imagine him playing off of a hub like Jokic, like the amount of backdoor cuts he get with that mm-hmm. change of direction is just absurd, and he's also a lights out spot up shooter. So I do wonder what Mitchell would look like next to. Um, like a true number one. So that's interesting to me. I would probably take Donnie over Kyrie too. And then the final guy, uh, he's probably my favorite player to watch in the league. So I'm going to take him. But would you guys rather have Donovan Mitchell or Jalen Brunson? I would rather have Brunson. And I think that it comes down to the diversity of the shot profile. And again, Mm -hmm. just like the consistency of the pure shot making. Brunson is absurd dude he shoots 55 percent on floaters he's an elite mid-range shooter he shoots 40 plus percent on pull-up threes that is so so valuable and he plays with such a composed pace and even as a small guard like there's not a lot of dudes who just get to their spots on the floor Mm -hmm. like brunson and again he does have the variety of counters and ways to get to those shots and he obviously can't unleash physicality like a big wing can, but for a six foot one guard, he's pretty physical. He's strong. He's, you know, very compact in terms of his build. So that to me was kind of the difference in last year's playoff run between the two. It was Mitchell has the higher ceiling if he's making 40% of his pull-up threes because of what he can do athletically. But Brunson is so much steadier. And I also think that he is the more consistent playmaker. That's another thing with Mitchell is he has these great playmaking moments and stretches, but I worry... I worry about when he just gets locked into, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to take all these tough pull-up jumpers, and I just don't worry about that in the same way with Bronson. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think it's another, uh, like you brought up, the floor versus ceiling thing. I think last mm-hmm. year we saw 
um Knicks and Cavs was a very defensive like grudgy series and yeah. it was like who can just make the mo- most tough shots and Brunson yeah. was like 1.4 points per possession in isolation it was absurd and I yeah. think like when you talk about uh a defensive series it's like we have seven games it's gonna be all defense i think that's the type of series where i would much prefer brunson because it's like yeah. like you said the versatility in the shot making the way he gets to his spots the the pace like he plays mm-hmm. so slow and methodical and it just it just breaks down a defense but i yeah. think i think the discuss the the ceiling thing is such a weird discussion because i think donovan mitchell when he's hitting is just in an entirely different stratosphere from where brunson can reach like yeah because oh, yeah. Of brunson, it, it's like Brunson's shot mm-hmm. profile is a blessing and a curse because yeah. you won't ever get um a 2020 bubble mm-hmm. type of series no. from Brunson. It's just, it just wouldn't exist. Yeah. So I think I would still prefer Mitchell, but I see the Brunson side because I think it's like I think it really comes down to teammates and defense you're facing, honestly. Yeah. That's what it's funny that you bring that up. Last episode we were having a I asked Jason Tatum or Jalen Brunson. And it was basically the same argument. And it's like Jason Tatum, and I would take Tatum, to be clear, over Brunson because I think there's a real difference there. I would take Brunson over Mitchell, but it's it's the exact same argument. It's like Jason Tatum can have these 60-point, 50-point, you know, screw you games. I'm gonna I'm taking over. I'm the best player on the court. We're going to win, and I'm going to slam the door. But because of his shot profile, he can also have these duds where his shot's off, and he gives you a 15-piece on, you know, 4 of 18 shooting. And you're like, damn yeah. you, Jason. Like, yeah, it's the floor versus ceiling thing. So I would take Brunson there, but I completely understand. Donovan Mitchell can also do the same thing where he gives you a 45, a 50, and you're like, totally. damn, man, he was just the best guy on the floor tonight. Totally. And I do wonder if I'm a little low on Mitchell right now because the last two playoffs in these small sample size settings, like his pull-up jumper's just been off. Whereas the previous two, he went berserk because his pull-up jumper was red hot. And the ceiling is higher for him than a Kyrie. It is higher, higher for him than a Bronson, maybe higher than a Devin Booker. Although I think Booker is in a different level as a player because like we saw his ceiling last year, even with that shot diet, he's just a different beast. But I was so, so impressed by how Brunson scaled to that rock fight defensive environment where it's like, hey, we have the same issues in terms of our offensive structure, right? Both teams, both primary ball handlers are going to face defenses that are loaded up in the paint because teams didn't respect their spot up shooting. They didn't have enough offensive skill alongside them. One dude just consistently carved his way to the mid-range in the painted area and had that difficult shot making, and that was Jalen Brunson. And Jalen Brunson didn't even shoot super well from three in last year's playoff run, and he was still like a super consistent, efficient 28-point-per-game scorer. I'm so impressed by him. But I think all of these guys, Logan, you asked a lot of good questions. Like, it's crazy how many guards there are in a similar tier. I do think Book is better than all of them. I think Book's stamped as a top 10 guy. I think he's just like a one-of-one one shot maker in terms of his versatility. I've been a huge Book guy, but I think he's the best he's ever been. He's unreal. Okay. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... 
Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Let's talk about some teams with a little bit of upset potential. In either conference, Tyler, we'll start with you. Who is the one team that you look at that's going to be a lower seed that would be the scariest for a top four seed to draw in the first round of the playoffs? I like to, uh, I, I like to, I'm going to pick one from each conference. Um, okay. Because I think it's interesting. I don't know. So it's kind of, it kind of feels fake uh, to go with the Sixers in the East because it's yeah. like, they're, they're really a one or two seed. <laughs> like they're right. not a six seed. Right. Um, so, I mean, I really like Orlando. I really like how Orlando could like, shut down a team's offense because Sixers are going to keep slipping. Orlando might end up with number five. Like, Orlando versus New York would be a pretty interesting series, especially if mm-hmm. OG and Anobi's out. Um, But I think I, I think in the East, you have to go with Miami. I don't think yeah. it's like... I think it's kind of just... I mean, they just made the finals as an eight seed. Like, what are we doing? How can you say anybody else? It's yeah, it's like, like it's like they got they got some dark voodoo magic going on. Eric Spolstra is a mad scientist, and it's just uh, they're gonna cook up something stupid. So, um, I think in the East, I'd go with the Heat, and then in the West, man, I feel like the top four teams are kind of stamped, and I think it depends on matchups. I think certain teams want to avoid. Like, I think the Thunder really do not want to see the Pelicans. I think Herb Jones is the best Shea defender in the league. And I think you have Chet Holmgren as like the only main rim protector against a Zion offense. Yeah. It kind of sounds like a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, But then like, I think the Nuggets obliterate the Pelicans. So it's like, it's like, uh, where do you, uh, I I think, uh, I think the Mavericks are scary because of, you never know what with Luka, but I think, uh, I think I'm going with the Pelicans, honestly, because I think they're just a, they're a matchup problem, like just size-wise. They just yeah. They're, they're very uh, they're very funkily built team. Very. They're it's an interesting pick. I, I completely agree with you on the matchup dependency because it's not just Zion going at Chet too. It's Valanciunas anchoring the glass against him. And I'm sorry, dude. Jonas Valanciunas is an ox. That dude is just gonna yeah. He's a grown man. He is just going to strength. Dude, yeah. he's just gonna he's country strong, man. He's farm strong. He is just gonna body chet in a grown man way. And the Thunder don't have any other big guys, right? I think that's the most valuable bench archetype in the league. And again, we've talked about how me and Carson have talked extensively about how these guys are kind of a dime a dozen in the sense that if you a big man that is strong that can uh rebound well, that can physically impact the game, but like the super valuable ones, the uh Hardensteins, the the big zoos, it's like those guys, if you can have a guy that just, again, playoffs come down to matchup more than anything else, and if you can have one of those guys that you can insert against a slider frame center, it's just a valuable guy to have. And so I think if Pelican, if the Pelicans draw OKC, that's a, 
I do think it's a recipe for disaster. Miami's a good pick, too. And the one thing that the Knicks have working against them in any hypothetical matchup is the fact that they have to play Julius Randle. So uh, there's always a little bit of upset potential there. My team is going to be Dallas, and it's because they got Daniel Gafford. Um, The Mavs have... One of the greatest backcourt scoring duos in NBA history. They are one of six backcourt duos ever to have both guards averaging 25 points per game. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me. Me and Carson shot this as a TikTok the other day. It's the second or third most points per game ever averaged by a backcourt duo in NBA history. So you just have the volatility of a superstar scoring duo between Luka and Kyrie. If they go if they go supernova, the Mavs are dangerous. You couple that with the fact that they went out and got Daniel Gafford at the trade deadline. They're averaging 46.3 rebounds per game with Gafford and 42.7 without him. That is the difference between being the fourth best rebounding team in the league and the 22nd best rebounding team in the league. That matters. Granted, uh, I mentioned this a couple pods ago. You have to couple in the fact they've played the Cavs, they've played the Pacers, they've played the Suns, the Spurs, and Wizards. Those aren't great rebounding teams, so we need to see a larger sample size to see if that's going to hold up. But they are a better rebounding team. I want to be clear about something. They have not been a great offense, and they have not been a great defense with Daniel Gafford on the floor. Guys, they have been a staggering 26 points worse for 100 possessions with Daniel Gafford on the floor. It's a limited sample size. That's an egregious number. But their offensive rebounding rate is up nearly 9% with Gafford on the floor. I think that's a real number to look towards, and that's a thing that matters when Luka and Kyrie are just going to be putting up a lot of shots. You've got a guy that can anchor the glass, and that's going to matter in a playoff series. So you've got two star shot creators and scorers. You've got 48 minutes of quality center play with guys who can finish lobs, rebound well, and anchor the interior of a defense. Like, look, man, this team's never going to be a great defense. I think they play too many defensive liabilities. Luka, Kyrie, Josh mm-hmm. Green, right? Like the majority of their wings, too, down to their threes, are just smaller guys. So they're never going to be a great defense but they're a lot more physically and athletically inclined to play these bigger physical teams like the T-Wolves, like the Nuggets, like the Lakers. Again, I don't know how that matchup comes to fruition, but teams built like that. Uh, so, I mean, the Mavericks would terrify me as a top four seed, dude. I do not want to run in to a Luka Kyrie-led team in the playoffs. That would just scare me shitless, man. Yeah, the Mavs are my choice, too. Out of the two conferences, I think that they're the scariest. I agree that it has to be Miami in the East just because it's like, how do you pick anybody else? Like, literally, if we are saying that the Sixers don't really count because, obviously, of Embiid's absence. But the Pelicans are an interesting choice because of the physical problems that they pose. I kind of think the fact that they're funkily built, though, as you say, Tyler, I like that phrasing, is also kind of putting a ceiling on them because they can't explode in the way that the Mavs can, right? The Mavs... A, have a guy like Luka who's going to be the best player on the floor on in almost any series and physically gets whatever he wants, but they also have the potential for these shooting explosions. The Pels are always going to play these lineups where it's like, okay, you've got three dudes who don't want to be spacing the floor if it's Herb, Jonas, and Zion. And I think that they can impose themselves and they can dominate the glass and they can create a bunch of good shots around the rim, but I worry a bit about the ceiling when... You just aren't necessarily trading threes with some of these really dynamic perimeter-centric offenses. And although they're a really good defense, I don't know that they're a great enough defense to make up for that. And that's another reason that I would take the Mavs over, like, the Suns. Now that the Mavs are improved enough in the front court, where they're bigger, they're more athletic, I still don't think they're a good defense, but the Suns aren't a good defense either. And then if I have these two great shot duos, these two great shot-creating duos, give me the team that has 
the best guy, that being Luka, and the guy who physically, I just know has a more reliable shot diet, as opposed to, as great as I think Book and KDR as pull-up shooters, if you're trading mid-range looks for Luka making 40% of his step-back threes and 65% of his shots in the paint, like, just give me the team that has Luka on the floor, give me that formula, so... I still like don't like how they match up with Denver, but Denver's kind of a different beast. Outside of that, I don't look at the Clippers and think, oh my God, the Mavs have no chance. Because it's like, if Luka and Kyrie soundly outplay Kawhi and PG, it's not like they're totally physically outmatched now that they have Gafford. I like the collection of wings overall they have. I think Dallas's depth is really solid and way better than I expected it to be post-Kyrie trade. So... They're the scariest to me because they have the best player on the floor and they have one of the best second shot creators and they've done enough in the front court to improve. Um, I have a, I have a question for both of you guys. Do you yeah. think, um, I don't know what matchup this would arise, maybe against the Clippers um, okay. with, to try and play Zoo off the floor. Do you think in a playoff series, like say the Pelicans are down 3-2, do you think they would start, like we could see them start Zion at the five? Do you think that would be, that could be a thing that happens? It's a really interesting question. If you're trying to play Zoo off the floor, I mean, that would be unbelievable offensively. Like, I'm thinking, like, Alvarado, Trey Murphy, Herb Jones, Ingram, and Zion. Like, that sounds like the speed, the speed on yeah. the court. Yeah. I think that that's a, I think that we could very well see that deployed for stretches. Like, and I think that, that can be a problem. And that's when it's most dangerous, right? When it's like this unique look that you haven't seen yet and you throw mm -hmm. it in there for the eight most important minutes of the game. Yeah, I think that could be dangerous. I mean, obviously, it's it's not ideal defensively. I of course mean, not. They're pretty small there. They're very small. But uh, but I think that we could see that. I think it'd I be mean, fun. Point Zion versus Big Zoo. Like, theoretically, you're either dragging him out of the paint every time or you're collapsing the defense and you've got four shooters around him. I mean, it's... It's intriguing. And like you guys said, like that's the beauty of that's what I love so much about playoff basketball, right? It's like Doc Rivers isn't gonna make a single adjustment, but you know, Eric Spolstra <laughs> is gonna switch everything, right? He's gonna give you a brand new look. Nick Nurse is gonna go to the box and one in the finals. It playoff basketball is such a different beast because it's like all these different combinations of these guys with skill sets and all these different schemes. It just the dynamic can shift with one adjustment, and that's what makes basketball so intriguing in the playoffs. I I don't know. I mean like they might get crushed on the glass, and they might get crushed defensively. But if you need some quick buckets, I think it's something that could work. I love how yeah. you brought up. I love how you brought up like the playoff basketball showing us different looks because mm -hmm. I remember all year the discussion with the Nuggets last year was um, when Jokic goes off the floor they collapse, mm -hmm. and then they debuted the Jamal Murray and switch everything lineup in Game One uh -huh. of the Minnesota series, and everyone was like, "Holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> what, what are we watching?" And then it was yeah. like. They won the non-Jokic minutes for in all four series, mm -hmm. and it was like that's insane. Like, like I I can't wait to see what we see this year. That is like just a complete out of left field move. Yeah, it's always so fun, dude. Playoff basketball is just on another level, and that's how I judge every player. I judge every player by how much do I want them in a playoff environment because it's just a different sport, and you know that it's going to be about okay how versatile are you right what happens when your first punch is taken away and you have to go to your next best thing you have to have this depth of counters and i mean that applies to every single player in every situation it's it's incredible i love the chess match of it all all right before we let you go tyler because we've kept you here for a while i do want to tap in 
to your knowledge of some of the historical greats because i think that that's something that is really cool i know you've done some in-depth breakdowns on some of these guys but even talking about the kgs and the duncans not everybody uh, of our generation has watched those guys with the sort of depth that you have so i'm curious who is an nba legend and it, please feel free to throw out multiple of these guys but who you think their ability is misunderstood in some way by the average nba fan well, I, I could just say every defensive player in NBA history. <laughs> I think the first guy that comes to my mind when I hear the word misunderstood is, stood is prime Draymond Green. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, just yes. absurd. But I want to go further back for this type of discussion because history has mm -hmm. no bounds. Um, mm -hmm. I think the first Paul Arizon. Guy, Give me the Paul Arizon take. The Paul Arizon. <laughs> uh, the first guy that came to mind is Nate Thurmond. Ooh. Um, like, probably it. the most physically imposing defensive player ever. Like, you look at pictures of this dude, he looked like he, like, ate, ate LeBron. He's, like, seven feet tall. And you look at uh, Wilt and Kareem's playoff numbers during that time, it's, like, every time they faced Nate Thurmond, it was, like, kryptonite. Yeah. And uh, I think that's super cool. Um, I also like guys who their skill sets were, like, I don't know, know if I would say outliers, but, like, ahead of their time. So they kind of – their value was really mis misunderstood, like – what was it, two-time All-Star Reggie Miller, who should have been, like, eight-time All-NBA. Um, yeah. Because, like, they just didn't understand how to gauge his value back then. They didn't know what gravity was. They didn't know movement right. shooting was, like, king. Um, I think a lot of those guys that just, like, precede their era, like Bill Walton with the oh playmaking, God, yeah. the uh, – he was the first guy to really have that, uh, like, centric offense guy in the middle of the floor looking for cutters. Um, that was something that – previously wasn't much of a thing i just think there's so many guys that like foreshadowed where basketball was heading offensively in the era we're in now like the Jokic, the the yeah. um high dribble handoff like that started with walton the mm -hmm. shooting bigs like you have guys from the 80s who could shoot as a big but it was like frowned upon mm -hmm. and i think i just think it's like guys who foreshadowed the current era that like got yeah. really misunderstood during time i, I think uh, you bring up a bunch of great names. Number one is Draymond Green for any of these discussions for yeah, me, dude. dude. He is the he is the poster boy of you know what, man? That's like a good litmus test for any NBA fan. It's like, tell me what you think of Draymond totally. Green, and then I can tell you if if we're gonna be able to have an intelligent basketball conversation. It's like Draymond just He's either underappreciated or you think he's like overrated, and it's there's like no in between. He's such a polarizing player. Uh, the first guy that I think of outside of that, you think you talk about guys ahead of their time. I think a two point guards, one, one of my favorite players, Pistol Pete Maravich. The fact that you just think about his skill set, forty points in uh, in college, right? And I just think about how he would look in a spread out offense. He was such a creative passer, such a great dribbler, could shoot from thirty feet, right? Like in this era of basketball, I just think he's a guy that in a spread out offense with a bunch of shooters running high pick and roll, Pete would be really deadly. And the fact that the dribbling rules are different, right? Like, come on, man, you're letting Pete put that thing in his pocket every possession. Like he's doing some crazy things. I think Steve Nash was ahead of his time, and I think because he never got a ring, I think he can get really underrated. Like, he is doing pinnacle point guards. And because his numbers aren't gaudy, because his scoring numbers aren't, you know, 25 yeah. a night, I think he can get underrated. And then the other two guys, I mean this in a completely negative light. I think Carl Malone gets really, under, uh, really overrated um, in terms of, you know, I mean, he's just... 
he's getting force-fed the ball by one of the greatest point guards of all time. And, like, you know, shout out what he did on the court. I think he can get overrated. He always fell short in the playoffs. Uh, and then the other guy that I point to, I mean this in a, in a positive light, uh, Moses Malone. In terms of the era that he played in, like, he's not a great offensive hub. He's not a great offensive scorer. But it's like when the game is so interior-centric and he is just a big body that could rebound the hell out of the ball, that could anchor the interior. And he's not an all-time great defender. I think there's a lot more better defenders historically than Moses. But when the game is so interior-based and you just have a guy whose skill set is, I am going to grab every freaking rebound and there's nothing you can do about it. I am going to create X amount of extra possessions for my team every game. It's just an invaluable skill set in that era, right? In this era, it's probably disgusting, but he's going to grab 20 boards a night. You know what I Andre mean? Andre Drummond. Uh, yeah, like, <laughs> um, I think that he can get underrated. I don't know. It kind of depends on your your viewpoint. I think in some I think in some viewpoints he's underrated. I think in others he's overrated. But it's misunderstood is the word, and I think uh, Moses mm. fits that bill. Moses is interesting. I actually think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Logan. To the average NBA fan, maybe he's underrated. I would argue to the average NBA person informed enough on history to like make a list of all-time players, he's overrated. Because I think people look at the accolades and they look at the 83 runs specifically and they can overlook like, okay, this is a a big who wasn't like an elite defensive anchor. He was a good defensive big who really could be a black hole, like really a limited playmaker compared to the other all-time greats. Like there's gaps between him and, and some of the other dudes who he gets lumped into conversations with. But you guys threw out so many of the names on my list that like I barely have anybody left. Draymond is always going to be number one for me. The number of people who think that Draymond is like actual trash, <laughs> it's disgusting because basketball fans have this hyper fixation with one-on-one -on -one scoring skill. That's a big reason you have people who say Kobe is the GOAT. Because you've never seen a combination of balance and footwork and the number of counters and difficult shot making that Kobe Bryant had. That's why you have a whole bunch of people who stand Mello. I upset all of New York when I said Mello is the most overrated player ever. But it's like, Mello's tough as hell, bro. I get it. He's a tough-ass bucket. But there are dudes who can exceed that winning impact with all the other things they do. Draymond is like the epitome of that. Like, how do people even rationalize with themselves that Draymond is overrated when two of the Warriors title teams, they had the number one defense in the league. Like how'd that happen? That just happened. That didn't happen because of maybe like the greatest combination of perimeter defense and rim protection that we've seen from a guy who also makes the whole offense go with his playmaking. You see it now since he's come back, right? Everything he does dictating the split actions, everything that happens off ball is unlocked by Draymond's playmaking. You mentioned Tyler, the short rolling. It just upsets me. The discourse around him, Nash, It'll always baffle me how people, when it comes to magic, can look at him and understand not a high-volume score, but crazy efficiency, all-time playmaker, so he just churned out number one offenses. That guy is GOAT-tier top five all-time. Steve Nash, who checks all those same boxes, and I'm not saying Nash is as good as magic, he's not. But again, not a super high-volume score, but crazy efficiency, still devastated defenses. For magic, it was more with like his mismatch attacking at his size in skill with Nash. It's just about the unbelievable pull-up shooting. Led seven number one offenses in nine years. Led the number two offense when Amari was hurt in 2006. And it's just the fact that he doesn't have a ring. That's it. Neither of these guys are bringing two-way value. He's like the most fraudulent MVP ever because of that. It was Kobe's MVP. That stuff always pisses me off. Reggie's a great call. Reggie being a five-time All-Star, three-time All-NBA, like always just sells him short. And I think... He's another guy who, like, some people 
it's so interesting, your development of understanding of basketball, I think, because you hear about like the mythology of a Reggie Miller, the big moments. And then if you're a young guy, right? If you're 13 or whatever, and you're me and you love basketball reference, you look at the accolades and you think, wait, this guy's overrated. He's only three-time All-NBA. And then you reach the next level of understanding where you're like, oh no, actually he had an impact on the game that these accolades didn't capture at the time. I think Ray Allen also is a guy who we point to Reggie first. Ray was the the centerpiece of a bunch of top five offenses throughout Milwaukee and Seattle. And I think has not all of the off ball value of Reggie, but a lot of it with a little bit more ability to put the ball on the floor and uh, a little bit more athleticism as a scorer as well. I love the Thurman shout out. Uh, These are a bunch of great calls. I think Rick Barry at times gets underrated. Like uh, again, you talk about dudes who are ahead of their time, a playmaking forward like that very much ahead of his time. And obviously a lethal all time scorer. And it's rare, very rare throughout NBA history that you have like just a sole star on a title team like that. The 75 Warriors were like rookie Jamal Wilkes is their second best player. Same thing goes for Bill Walton. Bill Walton had one of, I don't know, the 15 highest peaks in NBA history, like somewhere in the top 20, best defender in the league, best playmaking big in the league, super efficient scorer. So these are great shouts. There's a bunch of dudes who I just think generally it happens of you're looking at the raw box score or guys who just aren't like flashy scorers in particular, because that's what a bunch of basketball fans love and fixate on. But there's a lot of good counts. And on the the flip side of that, I would say it is generally the mellows. Dominique Wilkins, I think, is one of the most overrated players, because if you're a low efficiency scoring wing, not a plus playmaker, not a plus defender, you may be sick. You may have the mellow all-time bag post-scoring arsenal. You may have the neat athleticism, all these flashy highlights, but it doesn't historically materialize into winning at the level that you might think with how some of these guys are talked about. So there's all my takes. I was going to say a few of those names kind of uh, put some more names in my head. Like when you brought up Ray Allen, I immediately thought of Paul Pierce. I think Paul Pierce is one of the Mm. most misunderstood players ever. I think um, a lot of like Luca to his game, I guess you could say Luca has a lot of Pierce to his game, but like the slow methodical change of pace driving, like I, right. I feel like as a big physical, like six, eight kind of forward yeah, build. Yeah. People think of Paul Pierce as like uh, a wing, like a typical wing scorer, but in reality, like early two thousands, young Pierce was like, no matter who you put in front of him, he's putting pressure on the rim. Like I think mm-hmm. like 33% of his shots came within three feet of the basket in one of his peak, like young seasons. But the Celtics were kind of a disaster during that time. So I feel like people think of title Pierce, not young Mm -hmm. Pierce. Like, you cannot stay in front of this guy. And he's a versatile defender blocking, like, a shot and a half a game. Like, that dude was awesome. I think uh, the discussion about the small point guard, high efficiency, low volume scorer, I think Chris Paul easily is, like, one of the best players ever. Like, checks every box, but just because he had some unlucky playoff injuries and stuff, it's like, yeah, he's actually a bum. I would take xx and x over him he's rondo he's rondo he's rondo that is the worst like false equivalency in nba history the cp3 rondo stuff i think it's funny how uh chris paul it's kind of funny because steph curry was like in recent years has been like the bar like when a point guard becomes elite they get compared to steph Mm -hmm. curry like damian lillard luka Doncic, stay gilgis alexander like it's always like is he better than steph People mm-hmm. forget that they were trying to do that with Chris Paul, like Darren Williams, Rondo, mm-hmm. all of these guys, mm-hmm. Derrick Rose. It's like, are they better than Chris Paul? And like, in reality, they never, none of them ever were. It was always Chris Paul. And uh, I think that was, that's really interesting. And then the last guy I want to bring up kind of cut from the same cloth as Kevin Garnett in terms of like 
shortcomings of as an offensive number one, but one of the GOAT defenders is David Robinson. Like, mm. people really miss on that guy, I feel like, because you look at any impact number, like box score, plus minus, team performance, like, this guy stands out as a GOAT, like, a GOAT player. Um, I remember 97, he missed the entire season. They went 22-60 yeah. and 60 with the worst defense. After being, yeah. like, eight straight years of 60 wins, and I just think yeah. that's absurd. Like, I think David Robinson, as a regular season floor raiser, is, like, the top like that guy yeah. is special dude we just had that conversation about david robinson like within the last two weeks because i think he is fascinating like and i also compared him exactly to kg like all-time floor raiser with all-time defense but then also enough of the offensive number one value in the regular season at least to where you're going to win a lot of games you're going to be a good offense right skilled mid-range shot maker good playmaker for a big just like one of one athlete in terms of his fluidity and the combination of that with size and strength I do think he struggled even a little bit more as a playoff number one in those environments than Garnett with better supporting cast. Not great supporting cast, but better. But they averaged 55 wins a year before Duncan got there. And every time Robinson went out, they were a disaster. Like, that sort of floor raising is, is very rare. And CP3 is the one other dude who I had written down, so I'm so glad that you mentioned him. Like, uh elite point of attack defensive guard for a long time all-time playmaker controls the pace of the game as well as anybody i've ever seen runs pick and roll with the level of mastery that like probably only nash has exceeded this century super efficient scorer and in playoff environments like cp3 has been able to give you 25 whenever he wants like prime cp3 and also young cp3 was one of the quickest guards that we've ever seen and was a defensive monster and his game still aged so well, even as he lost that athleticism, because then it's just like, I still have this mastery of the game intellectually, and I'm such a great mid-range shot maker. He's like a top 25 player ever for me. And I remember when we did our top 25 players, a lot of people were like, how do you have CP3 so high, CP0 rings, Rondo 2.0? And I'm just like, man, a couple bad breaks that really aren't his fault. Like, that's the difference. That's it with his legacy. Man, I feel like if you took someone that never watched basketball before and just showed them 2009 Chris Paul and told them that that was the best player ever, they would they would probably <laughs> yeah. like the speed, yeah. the, the uh, like fierce defense where he's going to steal the ball three times a game and yeah. like not, not make any errors. He's going to give you 12 assists while turning the ball over once. He's yeah. gonna, he was like an elite transition player back then. He could get above the rim. He dunked on Dwight Howard. Like yeah, I feel true. like people forget um about young cp3 because they get used to like this surgical pick and roll operator right. where like at one point that guy was a freak and yeah then he just strung together one of the best longevity in professional sports we've ever seen and it's yeah. like that totality of that career how could you not have him in the top 20 top 25 like i feel like that's just insane to me dude i mean it's amazing how one ring can completely validate or invalidate a guy's career Seriously. in the eyes think about Dirk Nowitzki would be here if he didn't get his ring in 2011. Yeah. I mean, I think uh -huh. the, the discourse around him every year, playoff choker, bum, can't get it done. You can't get over the top with Dirk. And it's like this guy was, and granted, some of this is with Steve Nash as his point guard, but this guy's churning out top five offenses as the lead guy every single year. So it's one ring, man. It, it's yeah. crazy. Another one, one championship. Look at Barkley. Barkley. How, yeah. Barkley oh, my God, about. dude. 
100%. Bar- Barkley might be the biggest one, dude. Barkley might be the one. It's yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, because I feel like I, I it could be a hot take, but I feel like when you stack up like these all-time power forwards, I feel like Barkley was every bit as good as Dirk. Um, Dirk definitely had like better longevity, but just talking like prime for prime. And uh-huh. if Dirk never won that ring, you would see those two grouped together all the time. 100%. All that they would be like back to, it would be like Malone, Dirk, and Barkley. Like those three are like the three power fours that didn't win, but were win, but were really good. And then now yeah. it's like Dirk gets pushed up, which like rightfully so, he was amazing. But like then Barkley gets shafted because he didn't win a ring, but it's like, was he supposed to win the 93 right. finals? Was like, they weren't going to win that. And it's so tough because, like, that's his one shot. Mm-hmm. That's the thing with some of these guys is all of those years in Philly, very mediocre supporting cast, right? Hersey Hawkins is his second best player, like, of all of the years after 85 when it's, like, done with the Moses and Dr. J area. And those guys were old anyways while Barkley was young, so they were never going to coincide at their peaks. I'm a big Barkley over Carl Malone guy. I think he's another dude who, like, ahead of his time, his versatility as a scorer, his efficiency, he led the league in true shooting for four straight years. Nobody's done that mm-hmm. since. And he did that as a 6'5 power forward. Every year, it's <laughs> Mitchell Robinson, Rudy Gobert, right? Just these simple rim finishers. It's unbelievable. And he did that with a level of playmaking that's totally abnormal while being, yeah. like, maybe the best inch-for-inch rebounder ever. That's mm-hmm. probably Rodman. But, like, yeah. after that, it's Barkley. I don't know. He was just unbelievable, unbelievable offensive engine and so consistently great. But sometimes it comes down to the stuff around you. I will say, though, there is a level of greatness where you can't be denied a chip like Jokic, right? Like there are some dudes like if you are that if you're Pantheon, you're just going to get it done. But even he was subjected to exactly what you're talking about, Logan. Last year was some of the most absurd discourse around an NBA superstar I've ever heard. And then it's like, some dudes just leave you without answers. You without answers. You know you can't talk shit about Jokic. You're just what's wrong. so What's so funny about the Barkley true shooting percentage thing is this: is if like if you wanted to highlight one issue in his game offensively, it's like his shot selection. Shot selection. Yeah. Shot. So the fact that he was, I, I remember someone on. It's a great point. I don't know if you're familiar with the site Real GM, but uh, uh-huh. someone on their shot charted like I think it was ninety to ninety two Barkley's paint scoring like every game they could find they tracked it and he was shooting 82 percent in the paint which is higher than peak Shaq, like higher than peak Giannis, yeah. and he's That's six insane. foot five um yeah. and i like how you said the the whole thing about like if you're that great you won't be denied a chip because that immediately made me think of hakeem olajuwon who mm-hmm. um had the worst situation i've ever seen from a superstar for like the first what was it seven eight years of his career it was like an absolute disaster they bring in rudy tomjanovich um they implement the four out one in system and it's like this guy is insane and yeah he's putting up like 32 15 and five four blocks and it's like yeah, yeah this guy's one of the greatest i've ever seen so i definitely think there's like a certain level like you said um it probably starts with the guys that we talked about in that group where it was like Jokic, KG, Duncan. Like even right. KG, he had to get one. He just had mm-hmm. to get one. He went to Boston. They won 67 games, 66 games, whatever it was. And it's like, yeah, yeah I definitely think I agree with you there. It's like those guys are going to get one if they're playing 20 years. Totally. Just too great, man. Too great to deny. Akeem is a great example because, 
you can look at it and say two rings and it's like, well, any other player in most people's top 10, 12, whatever is going to have more than that raw number. But then it's like, you think about the circumstances, except for Wilt. Wilt will be up there with two rings, obviously. And that's why, and, dude. And I mean, it's two of the 10 most impressive individual playoff runs ever. Akeem in 94, 95. It's unfathomable. But people make these such pigeonholed arguments against them too. They'll be like, oh man, Hakeem lost in the first round eight times. He's such a bozo. Or, you know, yeah. MJ lost and it's like... They oh. were supposed to lose. <laughs> like, yeah, they were expected exactly. to win. What do yeah. you want the guy to do, man? It's, uh, the modern equivalent is always there, right? It's Jokic in 2022 with Compazzo and Austin Rivers as his starting backcourt. And the narrative is, oh my God, he fails in the big moments. Draymond clamped him. He gave you the efficient 32, 11, 6, whatever he normally does in a nightmarish offensive situation. Team results, man. And listen, like your impact on team success is the most important thing. There's no question about that. But sometimes I think that we can just fail to judge that when we just look at how did your team do and not how did you individually impact your team's success and ceiling. So on that note, Tyler, it has been a blast to have you, man. Sorry for keeping you so long, but we're probably going to have to have you back on at some point because I thought that this was a bunch of fun. And everybody, again, go check him out. Awesome content, very consistently. Hoop Venue on youtube you're back on twitter now is that just hoop venue what's your handle there hoop venue underscore you? hoop venue underscore anything else you want to plug before we let you go no i think that's it man i really appreciate you guys having me um definitely uh didn't feel like an hour and 45 minutes so that's <laughs> i agree thing. that's a good thing i agree um, we had a little nice yap sesh i'd like to do another one soon <laughs> so let me know um maybe yeah, the playoffs or something but uh yeah i really appreciate yeah. you guys having me uh love the show man Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Well, we're big fans of yours, and we will we will have you back. Believe that. This was uh, this was a bunch of fun, and hopefully you guys all enjoyed it as well. So that's where you can find more of Tyler Hoop Venue. If you want more of us, follow us across social: TikTok, Instagram at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. Listen to the show across audio platforms, but also on our YouTube channel, where you can find as well uh, the video breakdowns that we do some more intensive 10 12 minute film breakdown stuff on specific players and teams in the nba you can also find our trivia gauntlet the new trivia show that we're doing there once a week we go head to head that's a lot of fun logan hasn't won one yet but maybe someday maybe someday. i won the redacted out. episode man they trying to hold the man down no, man. logan quote unquote won an episode before we had the rules figured out no you won it. A- you won it straight up but we didn't have yeah. the rules figured out it was unairable because of that uh and so it is stricken from the record but yeah, if you want uh, the Nerdsesh hat Logan's wearing, that's at thevolume.com. If you want to join our Discord for a chance to speak to the one and only Matthew Spawnauer, who's now in our Discord, <laughs> that link is uh, at the link tree across our social media bio. So one last big shout out to Tyler. As always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerdsesh. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.